Hi, this is uh, Mike Edelhart, and I'm here with another edition of Inception, our podcast about beginnings, beginnings of new companies, new ideas in science, sometimes a little look at the future. And today, it's our fifth anniversary of doing these, and we thought we'd do something a little different. So uh, rather than being with a portfolio CEO today, I'm here with Jenny Young, who is our youngest member of the investment team, and I am the oldest member of our investment team. And, and we thought we'd have a little bit of an older, younger chat about stuff, the fund, the market, our experiences, that kind of thing. So hi, Jenna. Hi, Mike. Happy to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you here. So I'm in San Francisco today. It's gloomy. I'm doing everything I can to get some light in here and failing. And you are in London. I'm right? actually in London and it's sunny out. So things are quite topsy-turvy today. I love Topsy Turvy. You know that comes from Gilbert and Sullivan? No, I did not know. <laughs> yeah, they, they called the universe they created for their shows the world of Topsy Turvy. At least Gilbert did. And that's why the movie was about them was called Topsy Turvy. Wow. So, um, well, there's a generational thing right there. I actually <laughs> love Gilbert and Sullivan and um, can sing some of the songs and all that kind of stuff. When we were talking about doing this, you know, I said we started these funds in like 2011. So how old were you in 2011? 2011, I was 11. <laughs> yeah. So your life experience, and let's see, uh, I was 11 in 1962. Oh, my goodness. I think I, I mentioned this sometimes to folks. So who was president when you were born? Yeah. So when I was born, it was 2000. Uh, so I believe that was Bill Clinton. I'm just at the cusp of the last group of people to have been around when 9-11 happened. And that's like a big cut off generational barrier, especially in New York, since that's where I'm from. That's kind of how they distinguish who's old and who's not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And when I was born, Harry Truman was president. Wow. Uh, just briefly, I mean, it was right before Eisenhower. I was born a couple of days after Bobby Thompson shot her around the world in the first Russian atomic bomb test in the atmosphere and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was a grown-up when Clinton happened. Yeah, a lot of that I can't remember. can't really tell you what my working memory was like during those years. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... You know, and, and, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot at the fund is, is I, I at least view that as a really good thing. I try and be creative, and I really love being involved with all this new tech and all that. But in many cases, it's still not native to me because my experiences were developed in a very different area. So what was your first memory of, like, technology? What was your first device? That's a really good question. Um, definitely when I was a kid, it was um, it was probably tapes, watching tapes uh, on TV, on the giant cubicle TV um, that just emitted static everywhere. That's kind of my first memory of, of technology. And then growing up, um, I was a kid when, and everyone had the flip phone. My first phone was the flip phone. I had the I had this little slide up one, was not touchscreen. My parents had Blackberries, and that's kind of the generation that I grew up in. Yeah, and the marvel of technology when I was a 
child, color television. When I was a boy, TV was still black and white. It was re-channel with the weird test pattern with the Indian in the middle on from like 10 o'clock at night till 6 o'clock in the morning every day because nobody was broadcasting those times. And when color TV came, it was quite miraculous. And I, I some, you know, and we all get locked into those. And my first computing experience, you probably don't even know what this is, was on a hand-cranked octal computer. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> None of this decimal stuff, no zeros and ones, but zeros to eight. Mm-hmm. And you'd type in a value on this sort of grody old keypad, and you'd literally pull a crank. To load that value into memory, which is a bunch of little moving parts, and then you put in another value, and you crank it in, and you'd hit an operator, and uh, and it would spit out a little result. Mm-hmm. That was computer programming when I uh, wow. when I uh, started, and my early computers. Well, I co-wrote a book with a guy on paired Godbots, hand-built uh, CPM computers acoustic coupler so you'd stick the phone in there and it would communicate to another phone 300 bits per second that kind of thing uh i tell a story about my grandmother who was absolutely obsessed with transistor radios she couldn't believe it she couldn't believe that she could have a radio with her because radio was the media of her generation plugged into <laughs> anything and and it literally it just she knew it worked but she just couldn't believe it it was like magic magic to her do you feel like, uh, I guess since you were 11, do you feel like the rate at which technology has advanced looks more linear or is more of a hockey stick to you? I guess like what, do you feel like the rate at which technology has advanced was quicker during a certain area of time? Oh, I, I think it's accelerating incredibly yeah, I can't separate whether that's just the feeling because we're in a venture fund. So we see all this stuff and, yeah. and, and we're kind of part of the compression. So it's very self. Uh, but there's almost everything my grandkids are learning in school, especially related to science, didn't exist when I was in school. Wow. You know, there was no quantum universe when I was in school. There were no particles beyond proton, neutron, electron, when I was in school. There was no recognition of the existence of the microbiome when I was in school. Generally, cancer was diagnosed when I was a kid at the point where you were terminal. You know, something horrible would happen. Your head would explode. Blood would start coming out. You'd pass out and the doctor would go, too many cigarettes you're done or whatever. You know, so it was just completely different. And so almost everything uh, I think that matters didn't exist when I was a kid. So yeah, definitely accelerating. And now with all these new AIs and the ubiquity of this, you know, I've said for a while that, well, when I started, technology existed hardly anywhere. So when I started, I literally would have to go to the university to get to the computer. It didn't exist anywhere but there. The internet couldn't be found anywhere but there. The data was there in the university library. You used to have a carol in the basement of the New York Public Library so that I could actually get the data to do what I needed to do. And then was part, you know, it's if Davis of putting it on people's desktops. And this generation has put it in people's pockets and all that are on their wrists. And I think 
now we're starting to see the beginnings of the process that's going to make the nodes on the network us, that there's not going to be any space between the network and us, that uh, we're going to have nanoparticles like we've seen in companies in us, around us, on us, the general environment's aware of us. And so we'll be the nodes on the network. So the singularity is going to happen and we're it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. No, but to your point about, I guess, what they're learning in school being completely different. I feel like already, you know, I haven't even been out of school very long, but I feel like every year the history book and the science book just gets a little bit thicker, (laughs) Uh, more material to test on. So that's incredible. But at the same time, do you think that uh, we are innovating towards a dead end. I know it's hard to imagine what the next step will be, but I feel like as investors and seeing a lot of new technology come our way, I feel like more often I'm seeing innovations in things that I would say don't need to be innovated in. So I guess, do you feel like we're kind of running towards a dead end where there's only so much that we could do. I mean, we're already seeing it with the iPhone and the computer. Each generation, each yeah. new generation is is it, 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 the difference is getting smaller and smaller. I really don't know. It this may be a Darwinian moment. So everything is accelerating and everything is getting more compressed and everything is getting more intense. But the wet work that is a human being hadn't changed at all. So this may be a Darwinian moment. We're going to find out who can tolerate this environment. It may be that radically changed an environment, but literally, I mean, just hotter temperatures, different weather patterns, lots of things going on. Uh, uh, and some folks will thrive and many won't thrive. I, I really don't know. History says, you know, humans are pretty uh, clever, flexible, creative species, maybe pernicious too, because we're very self-interested. And so probably not a dead end that, you know, in the past, everything that seemed horrible, the Cold War, World War II, World War I, all these wars, pestilence, black death, you know, uh, giant flu epidemics, all that. And here we are. But it may be a period of really extreme change and nothing's forever. Maybe not even human beings. Again, we all talk about before human beings that have trouble imagining future with no human beings, but no humans in the past. Why not? No humans in the future. Mm. Um, But I don't, I hope and don't expect that this is that moment, but you never know. Yeah. I'd also love to hear your thoughts on, I guess, some of the folks that amidst all this change and innovation that's happening, there's definitely large groups of people who are kind of resisting that change, whether it be Italy banning chat GPT, TikTok's about to get banned in so many places, Um, people refusing to switch to electronic ballots and sticking to paper ballots, you know, I guess, how do you think of a lot of uh, more political pressure in some sense to resist uh, some of the, the technological advances that are happening that would make people's lives theoretically easier? Yeah, well, it's, and there are two sides to each of these. I mean, everything we do at the fund, pretty much everything has a real positive to it and can be flipped over and have some negative to it. So we can help you feel better in the moment. Does that mean we can help you feel better in every moment? Does that turn you into some sort of Eloy, make me feel better again right now? 
pleasure-seeking addicts in ways we can't even imagine folks being addicts right now. Uh, we can forestall disease in new ways, but does that make folks that are kind of lazy by nature, human beings are lazy, even more lazy? I can eat anything I want because there's just no wonder drug, Ozempic, whatever, and all my weight will disappear. That sounds not like necessarily a positive thing, even though it's changed. And so all of the things I think going on have this positive and negative. And the AI is a pretty good example. Uh, the argument that slow down, we don't know the effects of this, isn't valueless. On the other hand, that's not going to happen. Science never slows down. And change happens because it can happen. Change isn't positive or negative. It's just different. And so the outcomes are going to be the outcomes. There have always been Luddites. There always will be Luddites. There are always folks who stand in the way of progress, but progress never stops. In the end, people get what they want. So if the 8 billion folks on the planet want AI, they're going to get it. Uh, they may get it even if they're not sure they want it or they're not aware of it. But I've lived my whole life on the radical edge of technology, so I can't be normal about this. I'm, I love uh, the new. I love the strange. I love emerging stuff. I love groups of folks that are committed to doing special things and i can't take a neutral view about it i'm not sure if you can but you know this is a very tumultuous period and a lot of folks are somewhere between concerned and scared and they act out of those uh, feelings yeah absolutely and so since this is the fifth anniversary now of this podcast uh i would love to ask you since the podcast has started so in the past five years uh what are some of the things that some of the lessons that you've learned from investing, um, and I guess, what do you wish for the next five years? Well, yeah, it, uh, and of course, I've said to everybody, I intend to keep doing this for another five years. So that's an important five years for me as a person. That's a really interesting question. So, well, I've always said, always said for a long time now, I've said that it isn't about me it isn't about us even when this fund was like bill and me there are like two of us and a few folks who helped us that there was more at play here than just what we thought was going to happen but some of that i think looking back on it was just kind of catechism i said it because it was the thing to say and in the fund particularly in the last few years i've really come to see through you guys the group is smarter than i am the people out in the world are smarter than the group is and and really feel it, it internalize that in a way i didn't used to you guys are great you guys are greater than me. you're greater than me and bill whereas 20 of us now across the whole fun family and if we're all on it your background and age and my background and age and everybody's different cultural educational backgrounds, if we're actually together trying to figure out what we think about something, that group is much more likely to come up with a decent response to any particular question than any of us. And the more we're focused on, well, not what we care, but what do the folks out in the world really want, need, are ready to respond to, require in their lives, having the opportunity to have that experience has been a one of the great joys, unexpected joys of my life. Didn't think it was going to happen. Mm. Kind of improbable that it did happen. It's wonderful to be in the middle of it. And next five years, I'm, as an individual, looking forward to being part of uh, letting you guys take the place over. And and that means the whole nine yards. So take over the fund, change the way the fund runs, decide if there is a fund, 
for something beyond a fund, you know, because funds kind of a limited way to start companies. It works, but it only works in a limited sort of way. And it only works with a sort of limited set of exits and a certain kind of founder and all that. Those limits aren't eternal. Maybe something can be done that's better, uh, more egalitarian. And in the broader context of, you know, the future belongs to you guys. So you're the ones, for better or worse, who have to decide what that future is. And and becoming a little bit more of a viewer of that as opposed to being so much carrying the weight as my generation felt like, you know, sort of the interim generation, the war generation, we saved the world. And then our generation was, I don't know, what do we think the world should be? We never quite figured it out. My generation, we experimented with this, we experimented with that. I'm not sure we ever landed anywhere. And now it's very turbulent. What appears to be a very turbulent period in human history is going to devolve onto you guys. And you're going to have to figure out what to do with it. And uh, very curious about seeing that in a, from a sort of different perch as I move into, uh, you know, the later stages of my life. What about you? What are you looking? Well, how is this sort of lined up? So you were a student and you're saying, maybe I should get into venture. And then you did. So how much has the experience sort of lined up with your expectations or not? And what are you hoping comes out of all this? Well, if if I'm being completely honest, this is definitely exactly where I want to be. In a lot of ways, I feel like this is my dream job. And it feels like I have a natural affinity for this kind of work. So I'm just so grateful that everything has lined up perfectly for me to be sitting exactly where I am today. But yeah, so in terms of my story, grew up in New York, was in the public school system, very proudly so, uh, ended up at Stanford. And I went to Stanford thinking that I was going to major in public policy. I didn't know anything about anything. I just felt lucky to be there. And then while I was there, you know, I started learning a little bit about what startups were, what entrepreneurship meant. And I feel like I had a completely different view of what it meant to be an entrepreneur before I got to to college. My parents were entrepreneurs. They started a a clothing business. My whole family is in, in fashion and retail. But I feel like going to school in Silicon Valley, uh, a lot of people wouldn't really see that as what a startup is, right? I feel like going to school, I learned uh, that a startup had a very narrow definition. You know, this was kind of the era of the move fast and break things. Uh, Man's land, what's your tech app? Uh, What's your next dot com kind of uh, culture? And because of that, I think initially I was very turned off to it, honestly. I feel like at Stanford, there's kind of a, a very tech bro masculine culture. Uh, a lot of the engineering classes, you know, the gender balance there is not looking good. I was going to school there when all of the Google walkouts and protests at, at major tech um, was happening because of inequality. So it was just really disheartening to see. But I got involved because I started helping out um, some grad students who were starting their own startups out of the grad school there at Stanford in skincare and retail. So I guess traditionally uh, more girly things. But that's kind of how I got my feet wet. And I really loved it. The idea of, you know, being your own boss and creating something because you just really wanted to and you wanted to add your little slice of the world into your own business. I think that that was fantastic and so, so cool. But then COVID hit and and things changed. Uh, my view on the world got very pessimistic. 
I, I didn't think that I would end up in venture, but the way that I ended up here was uh, I actually applied on a whim to a, a job posting to be an intern at this fund because I wanted a chance to do what I really love doing, talking to founders and meeting entrepreneurs just a little bit before I went and sold my soul uh, alongside everyone else in my grade to a large corporation. <laughs> and honestly, I haven't looked back and I don't regret it at all. And I plan on sticking around for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, it, it, again, it, you're not here, in my view, it's not uh, random at all that you're here. I mean, never, I don't know how many Stanford intern candidates there were, dozens of them. And they're all great kids. They all went to Stanford. They're all grinders. I've never met anybody who went to Stanford who wasn't kind of a grinder. Impressive in their way. And it's like you have a bunch of folks show up at an audition and you ask them to sing and they all sing. And then somebody gets up on stage and sings and all the wine glasses break. So you really stood out from that group. So it was an easy yes, but then you nailed the internship here. Uh, <laughs> um, Sometimes when someone is new, you throw them the ball and they're standing there looking at the basketball going, what am I supposed to do with this? And you start to break into the basket right away. So, and that's been the case ever since. So, but you know, in some way, the generational difference is interesting because you're in London. You didn't start in London. No, I did not. And you didn't ask to go to London. You said, I'm going to London. <laughs> <laughs> My generation, we wouldn't have done that. <laughs> in my Zip Davis days, if somebody who worked for me walked in and said, I'm moving, I would have looked at him and said, that's interesting. Who are you working for me to get there? Yeah, but not just you, but as a generation, it's the whole interaction with power authorities, whatever, is different. And so you basically just presented us with a, here's a fact, deal. Uh, and we did. It, it's a very good thing, but it was a very different way of interacting with the old guy or the boss or whatever. Yeah, but I maybe that maybe this is just a, a factor of of the team. I I'll say this every day to every founder I meet, but I definitely do feel like we are so different from a lot of other funds. Not only in the way that we look or the way that our backgrounds and ages are distributed, but I genuinely do think that the culture that we've created is is really, really great. And maybe it's because I'm not scared of you that I'm able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you're not. And uh, my favorite character in all of literature is Jean Valjean. I read Les Miserables once every four or five years, and I deeply identify with him. And he's flawed. He keeps screwing up. He doesn't get anything right. He actually has some real problems as a person. I mean, the young Jean Valjean is an asshole. And he's full of anger and everything gets messed up around him. And yet, in that hyper-flawed way, he lives this graced life. And, and there are folks who wouldn't be alive without him and all that kind of thing. And uh, and I feel the same way about myself a lot. I was a real jerk when I was younger. I was ambition was skin wrapped around it. And I've heard a lot of folks and I did a lot of really terrible things in the way that folks in my generation say, I walked on the skulls of the dead to get to my position. And, you know, they deserve to be where they are. And I deserve to be where I am. And I'm not you. And, da, 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 da. and it's taken me most of my adult life to get over it. And try to get over it. And this group is the first time I've ever actually been able to be in a group and not be that 
I think I lead and you follow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Because, you know, and it's been wonderful. Uh, really uh, enlarged me, I think, just through you guys, letting everybody be who they are and just trying to help them be that. And yeah. not, you know. No, it's so interesting because out of all my friends right now that are, you know, now entering the workforce and having their first real jobs, none of them actually love what they do. They don't love going to work. They kind of work. They see work as a thing that they have to do in order to, you know, feed themselves, which is really sad. (laughs) I wish it could be more because, you know, all day, whether it be talking to people on the team or or talking to founders, I'm constantly talking to people who are doing what they truly, truly, really want to do. And and, and I think that that's so inspiring. So I, I'm really curious to ask, Pat, since I've only been really doing this for the past couple of years in total, has the way that you've seen founders uh, in terms of their attitude and passion towards founding startups, has that attitude changed, I guess? But overall, uh, in the cast of characters that you've met um, then versus now? I generally don't know if they've changed or my understanding, largely through this team and the experience here, of what it really takes to win and what win means mm-hmm. uh, has changed. So, you know, you were talking about the bro culture. I was one of the bros. I was like one of the original bros big hair back then and you know let's make a revolution and it was very male when the first spider i was involved with wound up becoming the google spider spider the usenet not the world wide web which was the sort of interpersonal part of the internet before the world wide web the problem no non-male content you wanted every imaginable discussion of any part of female anatomy there was oceans of content on the usenet about it uh, anything related to female needs or interests, there was none. There were hardly any females in the use yet. And so it was all kind of skewed. So I brought some of those sensibilities over with me. I think a whole generation did. But Jewish, 5,000 years of matriarchy. So uh, maybe a little bit more open. But right away, I just, when women.com first got started, somebody I knew from Ziff Davis was going to be the CEO there. And they were being completely rejected by everybody. There are no women on the internet. There will be no women on the internet. There's no reason for them to be there. And and I was like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and I'd seen this problem before. And that was real. And so I said, I'll help, you know, and came in to advise the CEO and be on the board and all that kind of stuff. And what was interesting about that experience was that the idea was sisters together. Sisters together are going to support one another, get the most out of life. And what women.com found when it started was the exact opposite. It was actually a big business problem. Not a lot of activity at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 2 o'clock in the morning. Anybody out there? He's at it again. He's drunk in the other room. I, You know, all this kind of, my kids up. Colic and you know it was a real almost crisis kind of thing. The the reality of the lives a lot of the women were leading was not you know hand holding dancing in the sun. Of that was a hard proposition to sell. But all that now, well you know we talk about love, and uh, we've talked about love from the beginning. A small group of people love one another and love what they're doing can accomplish almost everything. And that's I think the heart of it. Entrepreneurs. Uh, 
that are great love what they're doing. They're committed to what they're doing, feel it deep down inside, and they surround themselves with other human beings who love them and love this potentiality. And that's what produces the success, not the Stanford degree or the Harvard degree, not yeah. the, you know, pretty boy or any of that. And certainly not being you know, the Silicon Valley sense of success as expressed through popular media is exactly what doesn't produce yeah. success. Yeah, definitely. Do you, have you felt that, especially I think after COVID, do you see that or think that Silicon Valley is losing its power and potency as kind of the, the capital for entrepreneurship? Well, the numbers say for sure, yes, but I don't, you know, I don't, View the you know, if you talk about things in terms of battles, then there are winners and losers. You know, again, I'm old, which means I remember why the U.S. was dominant. The rest of the world was bombed into rubble. That's why we were dominant for a generation, and we did a lot of the turning them into rubble, and we weren't turned into rubble, so we could help them rebuild. And all these fundamental advantages in a previous generation that not the case now. And uh, haven't been the case for a long time. So unsurprisingly enough, the rest of the world is each region, each country, each culture in its own way is catching up as they should. So, uh, and we're a worldwide fund for that reason. All the good ideas on earth aren't coming out of Silicon Valley. All the people on earth aren't like the folks in California or the U.S. And so uh, let a thousand flowers bloom and be wherever the great ideas are. And, you know, the interesting thing for me is I've, talked about a few weeks ago, for all the stuff going on, bad education, violence, political turbulence in the U.S., big countries with authoritarian governments should be able to get more data out of their citizens and therefore have better AI. GPT came out of the U.S. again. So there's still something going on here that allows this particular culture to be a germination point for great ideas in a way that others haven't quite achieved yet, but I think they uh, keep getting uh, better and more active and, and they will. I have a question for you, and then we probably have to wrap this because we both have work to do and folks won't sit here listening to us talk forever. You're a young venture capitalist who happens to be female. One way to view that is I'm here to help support women. I'm a woman helping to support women. I'm in the vanguard. We've talked about the fact that the number of female-led companies, there's, it's almost like a perfect expression of systemic bias. Yeah. Uh, there's no chance that 2% of the great ideas come from women and stuff. So none yeah. of that makes sense. So one way <laughs> to view it is that. And the other is to say, I'm a venture capitalist who happened to be female, and that's utterly beside them. You know, don't ask Mike, are you a male venture capitalist? You're just a venture capitalist. So which of those more natural reflects how you have to feel? Or do you feel some other way that I just sort of don't grok yet? Oh, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting question. I think definitely I would put myself in the first box. And I think that's just because it, going to school in Silicon Valley and 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 from a relatively young age, just being exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs, the the venture capital culture, and the first thing I always noticed was that I was the only girl in the room, and 
you know, I don't, it, it might not be noticeable to other folks, especially if you're a man, but definitely as the only girl in a room, it's, it's really, it feels very strange. I would go to startup events. Um, the way that your talk to is different. Um, the way that founders have interacted with me is different. I would go to events when I was in college um, and I would be one of the few women there. I'd get hit on. I'm sure none of the men were getting hit on. You know, that's, I feel like the experience is, is very different and it's hard coded that way. Recently, I went to a venture capitalist event, uh, just a conference of some kind uh, where a bunch of folks from the industry met up. You know, it looked as you would expect. I was probably younger than everyone by 40 years or so. But that being said, I definitely think that I wish that more young people had folks who looked like me to look up to or just get some career advice from. Uh, I certainly did not have that when I was at school. Um, I think uh, definitely I had fantastic professors and and a lot of really great female entrepreneurs to look up to. But I definitely think in the, in the VC space particularly that that's lacking. Um, I know we discussed this recently, but I think the statistic is like 95% of all voting committees for VCs are majority male. Crazy to think about because, you know, it just really opens your mind to how things are getting funded, right? If, if, if the base of all the investors is majority male, then of course, we're going to start seeing a bias towards who the, the capital is actually going to. I've only just started working. I've only just started my career, but I feel like I've taken every opportunity to start uh, mentoring folks, mentoring students that I see who are interested in getting into VC. I've already started meeting with uh, a whole host of, of friends and women who are in other industries looking to break into VC. I think that we're in a really fantastic era where uh, we're seeing a lot of female-focused VCs pop up, where there's funds run by women for women. But I also do think you raise a good point that we need to be very conscious of not putting money into women just because they're women or raising people up just because they're women. I think there is inherent bias that we need to correct and we need to fix. But at the same time, success should not be just because you're a woman and that should not be the source of the solution, I believe. But that being said, I think a lot of work has to be done still. And I would love to get involved in it in any way. So if anyone's listening to this right now and would love a fellow gal to shoot the shit with, please <laughs> ring my line and I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> and on that note, and if you want to sit around and reminisce with an old guy about <laughs> uh, what it was like when you had to write assembly code to get your uh, program to uh, to work or what the folks from the PC revolution were like when they were young and unable to get dates, reach out to me. Uh, Janet, this has been fabulous. We'd go on for hours, but thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being who you are and, uh, and for being here. Yeah, same here. <laughs> thank you so much, Mike. This was fantastic. We'll definitely do it again. <laughs>